This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Leslie McNamara, Managing Director and Chief Marketing Officer of Retail Services at City. On this episode, Leslie talks all about customer loyalty and how rewards programs can improve customer loyalty. Rewards programs is a really interesting topic in marketing that isn't talked about much, but can be really powerful when used the right way. And there's no one who speaks to that with more knowledge and more experience than Leslie. A big thanks to her for coming on the show and for being part of such a great interview. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have, on the other line, Leslie, what's going on? Good morning, and thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. I am as well. I'm I'm really excited to get into your background. A ton of really interesting lesson, lessons learned over the years in retail services as a city. But before we get into all that, how did you get into marketing in the first place? So I transitioned into marketing um, through the credit card industry. I originally started out in packaged goods sales and fell in love with direct marketing and the ability to reach out at that time to customers through direct mail and just so immediately and viscerally be able to see the results of what you were selling or what you were promoting to customers. So I entered banking and frankly never looked back. Yeah, and I and I definitely want to get into some of that because I think it's it's so fascinating um, the parallels that you know direct mail and and a lot of the stuff that we do today. What is City Retail Services? How is it? How does it fit into the organization? And what's your role as CMO? So City Retail Services is one of North America's largest providers of private label and co-brand credit cards for retailers. So think of iconic brands that are clients of ours, such as Macy's or Best Buy or the Home Depot. We provide white-labeled product to their customers that allow them to charge in-store, but are completely serviced by Citibank. And we are a significant portion of the uh, of the Citibank revenues um, and a big contributor to the bottom line of the organization. We service 85 million accounts um, and cardholders and facilitate the shopping journeys at these retailers. Awesome. So what is your what is your typical day look like? Are you working with those retailers every day? Are you spending a lot of time on marketing campaigns? Like what is the scope of the work? A big part of the time that we're spending. So when we think about the way we divide up the marketing organization, about half of my people work on client-specific campaigns. So we actually have chief marketing officers for each one of our large campaign portfolios, so for like a Home Depot, who live and breathe that retailer, their retail environment, their digital assets, their customer profiles, and design marketing campaigns. And again, sort of the journeys that customer ha- customers have in shopping with our products. The other half of my organization is really centralized center of excellence or 
capabilities that are shared by all of the partners that bring really robust you know, skill sets to the table. So again, think about a research and insights team that's shared or a shared repository or skill set for all of our partners or digital marketing. Again, sort of an area of specialization that can be really shared across all of our partners. So I run those centralized functions and then those very direct teams that work closely with partners. And so are you working with with CMOs and, and other marketing leads at those retailers or who are your your client relationships with? Yeah, so our client relationships at the retailers will be at two levels. One, there's usually someone inside, particularly a large retailer like a Macy's or a Home Depot. He heads up a team that interfaces directly with my organization. So they are responsible for essentially managing the private label credit card integration into that retailer. Our other client set inside of that is the CMOs or the digital um, leads inside of those organizations. So we work with really both of those groups, as well as in many cases, store operations or even merchandising departments where we may be running special promotions, for example, on a particular type of merchandise, we'll negotiate directly with that division within a company um, to put together the best possible campaign to reach their customers and make sure the value proposition is really on target with that merchandise. I'll give you an example. If you're buying a refrigerator, the kinds of promotion that you're going to want to put out there is going to be something like deferred interest, where you can pay over time and enjoy the benefits of either low or 0% during the time period in which the promotion is running. But when you're selling blouses or maybe shoes, it may be more rewards and points oriented. So a very different kind of promotion based on the merchandise type as well. That's really fascinating. And it's like obvious because we've we've seen those type of campaigns, but it's really interesting how much, you know, how many levels of complexity go into those type of, of campaigns. I'm curious, for these, are you looking at digital only? Are you looking at out of home? What, what, what sort of stuff are you looking at for these campaigns? You know, it really depends on the retailer, you know, but by and large, uh, most of the retailers of course, yeah. that we work with have storefronts, have a footprint, a physical environment. In that particular case, we're working with them on their point of sale system, training their store associates, ensuring that the signage or the way that we're messaging in store is appropriate. But at the same time, these days, people don't just shop in stores. And they're using you know, digital assets. They may be on a, a PC. They may increasingly be looking at a mobile device while they're shopping in the store. So again, being able to make sure that our message and our promotion is really ubiquitous and that the customer can access the information that they need in the channel of their preference is a big part of the way that we work today and has seismically changed, you know, sort of the topography of the way that we go to market has to be so much more seamless than it, you know, used to be in the past. And it's so interesting to me because back in the day, it seems like those type of campaigns could be a lot more methodical, could be a lot more thought out and and those different touch points. Well, I mean, I guess they need to be increasingly thought out because there's more touch points. But what I mean is that there wouldn't need to be so much just in time, you know, so much like down to the down to the minute, down to the second, those type of flash sales and things like that that are going on. How has this role changed over time for you with with the rise of mobile and digital and all that? It's actually gotten to be much more point in time and much more in the moment. So if you think about the way that I would have spoken to customers in the past in just a pure physical store environment, 
through signage, through training store associates, you know, through, you know, physical imagery and materials, you know, they were very static and they were very reliant on the customer interactions at very specific points in the store. Today, when I'm looking at digital assets, I'm really interacting with customers in the moment. You know, where are they in terms of their shopping you know, decisions and journey? What's the right time to pop an offer to them? When are they, you know, most interested in making what's going to be their payment decision in that shopping journey? As you move even from a digital property like, uh, you know, a PC to a mobile device where now I know where you're standing in the store. I know what kind of merchandise you're looking at, and I'm populating you with offers or understandings of how you can purchase that particular merchandise. Very, very different than it would have been in a in a physical store environment where I didn't find out what you had in your cart until you were going through the register. And I was able to see, you know, at the SKU level, what you might be purchasing at that time, often late in the journey. Whereas now in these digital properties, it's truly in the minute and in that, you know, particular time when you're making that decision that I have visibility into what you're doing. So it's really accelerated our game and accelerated the needs on us to respond to what customers want in terms of value propositions. The abandoned cart has has given more more marketers heartache uh, over the uh, over the I'd years. I like to think that it makes us better at what we do, and and having to deal with that cart abandonment issue. Um, sure, you know that is what a you know a retailer they live and die by that that cart. And if I interfere in any way, shape, or form, or my messaging is not on target or heads in the directions of cart abandonment, I lose. So I have to be much sharper at my game. Yeah, it, it reminds me of, and I don't think this will ever actually happen, but, you know, the idea of like how, how the Instagram image was uh, was like a Polaroid camera, even though everyone was using it, had never actually used a Polaroid camera. If someday no, so nobody knows what a shopping cart is, but it's just the, the digital cart. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but I digress. So I'm curious, with those levels of changes, how do you, do you do partner Marketing, how do you kind of like classify these activities uh, like as you're working with the retailer on these type of campaigns? Like, is there something specific that you're providing with them? I know, and we'll get into the content and the market research that you all do in a little bit, but to tease it here for a second, I'm curious, like, what do you think? What do you think are some of those advantages that you have when you go to one of uh, your clients with some, some additional information about the buyers? So, you know, first and foremost, just going back to our business model, as a B to B to C organization, our role is really to work with the retailer on improving their business model. So we never confuse the fact that we are not retailers, that what we're doing is facilitating the payment and increasing their sales through making payments or credit lines available to people or lowering their cost of goods sold you know, through our products and the negotiated deals that they have with us and sometimes the revenues that they make off of our card products. So, you know, we really focus in on the, on payments and how payments enable their customers to buy more or to consolidate their spend onto the preferential payment vehicle for that particular retailer. And we have some real advantages from a, a city perspective. Number one, we are a global bank. So when you think about the resources that a global bank 
um, can bring to the table simply in the investments in technology, experimentation in some of the digital or mobile advancements, testing of different ways to do payments or to even, you know, invest in rewards programs. You know, we're just in a very, very different place than our competitors in that just sheer girth in being able to bring that experience, you know, from a global basis and global learning platform to our clients. So first and foremost, I would say science does matter when it comes to, to being able to invest at the level of a bank like City. You know, the second thing is because we are a very large organization and have a very large what we call branded card business, we also have a repository of consumer data that is off-retailer that allows us to data mine customer behavior or how they're shopping more broadly or what trends are occurring that really can inform and infuse a retailer's database or modeling behaviors in terms of how they're approaching customers or how they're utilizing their marketing dollars more broadly as well. So we're able to provide a great deal of intelligence to them. You know, the third thing is, you know, we do have some proprietary services such as, you know, research and insights where we do things, you know, like mystery shopping stores is not just mystery shopping our own stores to see how associates may be promoting certain products or services or whether, you know, they're on target with what we want them to do, but also shopping all of their competitors and giving them a sense of what's going on in those stores. How are they positioning credit? Are their store associates doing a better job? Are there lessons to be learned there? We also have a proprietary relationship with a firm that allows us to do real-time research and connection with customers for things that may be credit-oriented is how we're positioning things in the marketplace. But also, we allow our retailers to use that service to look at their own marketing materials or merchandising strategies and determine if they're on target or if they're getting the right consumer response or the expected consumer response before they spend that money. So we're able, again, to really over-invest and over-index on a service like that as well. That's so interesting to me. So with those mystery mystery shopping opportunities, by the way, is this like supermarket sweep? You got to hit me straight here. Who's actually doing the mystery shopping? Is this your team? Yeah, so the uh, the mystery shopping is out, actually an outside firm, and they hire people who go out, and we give them very specific instructions, so literally hundreds of them, who go out and physically shop at a store and go through the sales process and go through the credit process in order to tell us you know, how well that's working or not working. And then we compile all of that data. Some of it is very manual. And then, you know, we automate essentially all of the back-end reporting and provide industry. So if you're in a department store segment, we'll give you back as a, one of our clients a view on department stores and the segment in general and how it's performing uh, and how they're servicing their customers in the store. I'm curious to how much the sales associate plays in that process. And I don't know if you have any insights that you can share there because I, I find this a really interesting kind of like moment in time where so much of retail that's happening online is like without a helper. But when you go to a Home Depot, a Lowe's or something like that, half of the reason why you're going there is to go talk to one of the people that are floating around. So I'm curious. Expertise I mean, matters. Yeah, Expertise totally. matters in the credit sale as well. You know, I'll give you an example, particularly in the large ticket space. So think an engagement ring, think a refrigerator, which, you know, is a at least a $2,000 purchase these days. 
you know, when people go to make those purchases, a big part of the decisions they're making is price and affordability. So having a sales associate who really understands how credit works and how to introduce it into the conversation or understand that particular customer's, you know, wherewithal to purchase an item is critical. So it's not unusual that one of the turning points in somebody making a decision on whether to use an existing card that they have at the retailer or whether to open a new account, a pivotal question is, how are you planning to pay for this today? So if you're buying a $2,000 refrigerator, how are you approaching that equation? And as a store representative, how can I help you? Did you know that you can get a 5% rebate on this purchase today? Did you know that if you need to spread your payments out over time, if you pay in full over 24 months, it's 0% interest. You have the opportunity to pay that back without interest and to take your time to do it. So that store associates ability to have a sensitive conversation around money and get a customer comfortable with what's the best way for them to pay is really pivotal. And in fact, harder to replicate online than it is in a store environment because a human is more nuanced and can read better the customer and their customer situation and receptivity to the offer. And we're still, you know, we're coming up the learning curve really fast and have made just, I think, incredible strides in the past two years in being able to replicate that selling capability online. But it's still not, you know, the same as a human being. You, you just sort of to your point is sometimes you want to go to the store and you want to talk to an expert. And it's a different shopping experience than it is online. Well, you know, and that's I think we've all been there when, when you're standing at the counter and they ask like, hey, you know, you know, you could save whatever 10 percent of this you know, large purchase by getting a card. And I think that this is kind of one of those digital versus in-person things that is going to be really tough to figure out is I'd say the best sales associates are the ones who, if you're buying something that clearly you're not going to, and you look like you're in a rush and whatever, you're probably not going to open a credit card in the next five minutes or whatever it is. And it's tough to read that digitally. I'm sure the algorithms will figure it out if they haven't already, but it's tough to read those type of things. And it just makes you feel weird as the buyer when somebody asks you that stuff when you're like, dude, can't you see I'm literally running through this? <laughs> you know, like I, I need to get out of here to my kid's soccer game or whatever it is. Yeah. Usually when you're the best time to introduce the notion of credit is not at the, the actual checkout. Um, exactly. At, at, you know, at that point, you know, somebody is completing a transaction and it can be interpreted as noise where you know, we refer to this as a consultative selling process, is you really want to get up earlier in the decision-making chain, whether that's online or whether that's in a store environment, is to understand what is the customer looking for? You know, how can you accommodate their sale or their need in that moment and being able to read it? So even in an online environment, we avoid introducing that conversation at checkout because it's too late at that point. It's when you're looking at merchandise, and again, we'll go back to the refrigerator. You may be making a decision between, you know, a $2,000 refrigerator and a $2,500 refrigerator. And if you know that you're going to get 5% back or that you may have two years to repay things, as you're making that decision, as you're, you know, whether online or in-store, comparing products and decisioning what's right for you, having that information around how you can reduce the cost or the impact to you 
is something that you want to introduce at that moment, not after you've already made the decision to purchase the $2,000 refrigerator and we're blind to the fact that you probably could have afforded the $2,000 one or an extended warranty or something else that you may have really desired as part of that purchase. And knowing how you'll pay and what the benefit of that payment vehicle can be really instrumental in getting the right product for that customer. Yeah, it's funny. I just, I recently bought an engagement ring and, uh, and I didn't think Congratulations. about it. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> she said yes. Uh, but so it's funny because I didn't realize it till later on that I could have just done a financing option that was like zero interest and I could have paid it off over like the course of a year. And it would have been beneficial to me to do that. And I didn't even, no one even had brought it up to me. They were awesome. But that was maybe the one short-sighted thing. That was thing, a or maybe opportunity the, then. Yeah, exa- exactly, right? I'm sure you're, someone on your team is screaming out into uh, into the void. But yeah, I, no, I think that those sort of things, like, you know, empowering the the person to make the right decision is, is really important. You know, and a huge piece of this is loyalty and reward stuff. Um, and I want to get into this. So we know, uh, you know, somewhere that Linda Faison goes to Black Friday every year at Macy's with her Macy's card and buys her her family a bunch of Macy's stuff on uh, on Black Friday. Who can resist the deals? So I'm curious, like, why are loyalty and rewards programs so powerful? Do they still work? And how has that changed over the last 10 years? Yeah, they, they certainly work from a retailing perspective. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier, I mentioned sort of the best way to pay. When we think about retail product, when we think about retail cards or you know co-branded cards, in every instance, what we would, would tell people and what we tell our clients is that you always want to be short. And in fact, you can be assured if you looked at retail cards in general, the very best way to pay at any retailer is with their retail card. The disproportionate discounts, rewards, outstrip anything that you'll see in a general purpose card or, you know, a general purpose rewards card every single time. And that's because, frankly, the retailer is not paying the interchange or sort of the cost of goods back to the bank on that particular instance because it's a one-on-one relationship directly with us and travels over our rails, if you will, um, in transmitting data. So it's usually the cheapest tender for the retailer to accept, and they pass much of that benefit along to the customer. So the rewards are significant on a retailer basis. And customers expect those rewards and really look forward to them. So what used to be coupons in the past, you know, paper coupons or paper reward certificates are now much more sophisticated vehicles in terms of your ability to redeem those in the store, you know, on your mobile phone, or when you're shopping online, um, you have access to that as a special currency that is available at that retailer. And they're very powerful in terms of retaining somebody's shopping behavior or encouraging them to consolidate their spend in that particular industry at their store. You know, if you're at Best Buy, for example, and you're active in their rewards program, you have a currency that's available to you to purchase electronics. So if you're going to purchase electronics, you're going to go there first and use that currency. So something like Best Buy can really then consolidate all of your activity into their store and build a real preference for you in terms of shopping their, their franchise and their stores. I got to be honest, and this is one of the reasons I was so excited for this for this interview. 
I kind of feel like a lot of companies aren't that great at this. And I, maybe they just need, maybe they need more help from Leslie. Uh, I don't know. But I kind of feel like a lot of the rewards points, and maybe I don't have my preferences set up right or something like that, <laughs> which is highly possible. You're just moved not a lot. shopping enough. <laughs> no, I promise. <laughs> I promise I'm shopping too much uh, or enough. But yeah, I just feel like that a lot of the retailers, I, maybe it's that they don't extend a good enough digital footprint or maybe the way that they get rewards or maybe this stuff goes to spam. I, I don't really know what it is, but I just feel like some of the retailers that I'm super loyal to don't necessarily have the level of giving back that is very transparent. And I think that the reason why is because there's so much noise. I don't want to dime out any of my favorite retailers here, but but yeah, I mean, I really think that there's just so much noise and it's so crowded in your promotions folder and it's so crowded on these sort of things. Uh, one company that does a great job of this is, is Yeti, where they have a lot of good communication, but but that's a totally different type of company, right? And they spend a lot of money on on their digital outreach and things like that. I'm curious, like, what are some best practices? How could, the, for the marketers that are out there that are listening uh, in the retail space, how could they get better? You know, so I, I think some of what you're pointing to is really the seismic change that has been happening in retailing over, I would say, the past five years. You know, when retailers first started to build up their digital properties, they did it in an arms race fashion where, you know, they built separate organizations where they wanted to get to bright fast in terms of their digital capabilities. So they had store organizations that were separate from digital organizations. And it's really been in the past five years that you have seen what they first called sort of, you know, omni-channel shopping experiences, kind of forcing those organizations together to now, what, you know, we would say is a much more blended, you know, retail journey. So, the sophistication that is growing now to be able to follow your shopping behaviors, your journey, and to be agnostic to where you're purchasing, and to be agnostic in terms of allowing you to access your promotions, your promotional dollars, and rewards is very, very different now, and is accelerating at an incredible pace at this moment at most retailers in terms of just, I know from my own shopping journeys, where I have to, you know, used to have to tote around, you know, paper coupons, and if I left them home, I was completely screwed at the point of sale, where now everything is available through my phone. I don't have to carry those things. It's much more ubiquitous. You know, the sales associates understand how to redeem those promotions and how to work with me on that. So you do see, you know, sort of a different level of sophistication coming in that. I think the other piece of it that you're alluding to when you spoke about the spam filter, I think retailers are getting better at understanding the customer dialogue and frequency in which you communicate and how to be more relevant and on target with what the customer's looking for. So, you know, I think the days of bombarding your email box with messages in the hopes that you will open one of them and it'll be relevant to you are gone. And I think that the messaging is getting much more targeted toward the kind of merchandise that you're interested in, where you've been looking at it, you know, or what you, your consideration set has been and how to tailor those offers to you to, frankly, put you over the edge to say, yeah, like you finally hit the discount threshold or, yeah, my reward now is meaningful enough that I can afford that particular item. It's a lot more attractive to me now because I can redeem with my reward certificate 
I think retailers are getting much more sophisticated on how to both balance their margin with leveraging the rewards programs that they have and the communication vehicles at their disposal. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, I think that a lot of the communication stuff that we thought that we were going to have great access to, building a a massive Facebook page, uh, you know, building your Twitter following, you know, building a massive email newsletter list that are still, you know, potentially important, very important, less important, depending on how you're doing things. I think a lot of those, we thought that we were just going to be able to push a lot of, you know, promotions and updates. And then it just kind of went into the ether or, you know, contributed to the noise. I'm curious, like, how can brands set themselves apart? How can they engage better with customers uh, in a more meaningful way? Yeah, yeah. I think, it, particularly in my space, it is really retailer dependent. So, you know, most retailers have a very good grasp on who their customer is, how they want to be interacted with, how to approach them, and what you know, merchandise, rewards, sales propositions make sense to them. So if, if you went through sort of my, you know, my retailers or spoke to the people who serve that particular retailer, you're going to get a very different answer to that question from somebody, for example, who's focused on Best Buy, whose, you know, customer is very digitally savvy, who is very comfortable with credit products, understands how financing works, is more interested in the ability to pay over time, or if, if they're able to, to leverage their rewards, like if they're, you know, building their rewards repository at Best Buy, you know, they know how to check their rewards balances and to manage all that. That's going to feel really differently than it's going to be for one of my fuels customers. If, you know, you're buying gas on your card, it's all about immediacy is are you offering me, you know, a discount off of my gas purchase as I am standing at the pump? It's, you know, about do I have a lower cost per gallon in using your card product than using any of my other cards that are in my wallet. So the the topography of what that customer expects and who that customer is radically different by retailer. And that's what makes my work really fun. It's not as though, I, you know, I'm dealing with a static equation or a static group of customers. As I go through and talk to a jewelry merchant, it's going to be a radically different proposition than if I'm talking to somebody who is in the fuel space or if I'm talking to somebody who's in a department store space. And that is part of the challenge and the, you know, what makes this business so fascinating. It doesn't hurt that I love to shop as well. Um, yeah, so, no kidding. You know, all of I, it appeals to me. <laughs> I know that your secret. You're talking about hundreds of people buying. I know that it's just you. I I have uh, uh, I have an. Inkling. I do shop at all of my retailers. So I recently went. I purchased a couch. I don't know why this is becoming like Ian's retail therapy uh, podcast episode, but um, <laughs> I recently purchased a couch. Two couches, in fact, and a bedroom set. You know who's kidding. And one of the things that struck me as extremely interesting was I was talking to a sales rep and he had to go to his manager. Actually, and this happened with the engagement ring too. He had to go to his manager and say, hey, they're looking at online. So I have to give them the online pricing. And the manager ended up giving the same price that was online, but like kind of went through the whole, you know, hum and ha about the whole thing. And him him and his manager were talking, and he was like, hey, I would have lost him. He just would have bought online. 
How many retailers are still separating like their P&L from in-store versus online? Because I find so many of younger buyers, like anecdotally, that are going in, looking at the thing, and then just going back home and buying it online or checking out in-store online. And some, it seems like some companies are fighting this still. Why do you think that is? And, or maybe, maybe I'm off base here. Yeah. I think what you're referencing uh, is what we discussed earlier, that the way that retailers started their digital properties were often as separate businesses. Like to get it off the ground, to get it moving, they didn't build it in a way that was integrated with the physical store environment. And as I said, that's changing uh, and you'll see more and more integration across retailers. And sometimes it's, you know, it depends on the size of the retailer and how far they are along in that journey. You know, my suspicion is, you know, a year or two years from now, we talk about that, it'll be a very rare instance where you'll continue to see a retailer running those two properties. So they're, they're aware that that is a pain point with their customers. And more importantly, it's a pain point in their store, you know, in terms of taking people off the floor to find the manager, to go through that discussion. It's just not a great customer experience. So they are trying to solve for that. You see a lot of the price matching in-store, you know, starting to at least look like that, make it easier for store associates to do it when you have that equation. But I thought it happened to me at a retailer as well. So, and I know what a turnoff it was from a customer journey perspective and retailers are aware of that too. And I, I think you'll see that disappear in very short order. Well, I, you know, I think some of this is like change management, right? Because this is the thing, like the sales rep is the person, like the reason why we bought the couches we did is because the sales rep was fantastic and was so helpful with like a bunch of different things. And like we we truly wouldn't have bought what we did if he wasn't so helpful. And if he's disenfranchised by the fact that we're going online, but part of this is like, you know, I live in the Bay Area. We live in the most expensive market in the country and everything is marked up double, right? So the online pricing to them is astronomically lower than what it is in store. And I think that this type of like mistrust from the customer, like, you know, I, maybe I figured it out and I I know the, I know the deal, but if I had bought it full price and then went back and looked online, I would have been pretty upset and not happy with the retailer. And store associates are wicked smart. You know, they know exactly what's going on. They know the online pricing. They know that you're going to look at, you know, at, you know, you're going to be comparison shopping. You have the tool literally in your hand as you're standing in front of them. So they're very, very aware of that. And they're comfortable with that conversation and comfortable with the process. What it comes right down to is how easy does a retailer make it for them and how empowered are they to make those decisions if indeed, you know, their store properties and their digital properties are disconnected in terms of their price strategies. So, uh, you know, they know how to negotiate that conversation and many times they'll assist in that process quite readily and willingly. The value of a store associate, as you said, you've made some very large ticket purchases lately. Store associate expertise and their ability to make sure that you get the right product and it's exactly what you want is really important in the big ticket space in particular. So they're going to facilitate the best possible journey with you because that's their store associate now. And he knows that you bought, you know, sofas. He knows that you bought a bedroom set. He's figured out that you're getting married and you're going to need a lot more stuff. And he wants you to come back. Not that, not that much more stuff. I promise. He's got your number now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. So shifting gears to the market research piece, we talked about it a little bit at the top, but 
I want to dive in a little deeper on like, how do you do retail services market research? You talked about your love for, you know, falling in love with marketing by being able to do direct response and mailers and things like that, uh, where you got feedback from the customer, you know, you led to direct sales and, and you could essentially dive into the data in that respect of, hey, if we send this thing, it gets this type of response. Now, it's, you know, supercharged. Do you have, you know, data analysts on your team? What does that look like? What are those capabilities? And uh, and how exciting is that for you as a marketer? So, yes, the, you know, the answer is absolutely from a data science perspective. You know, one of the, the beauties in being in banking or being in the space that I'm in is just the sheer amount of data and information that you have on customers, you know, their behaviors, their purchases, their trends. So, you know, we are able to use that deep repository of knowledge to be very predictive around when is your next purchase going to be? What might that next purchase be? You know, what is your predilection to use either loyalty programs or financing opportunities? You know, we have a very wide view in terms of even your wallet and how, you know, how many general purpose cards you have, how many retail store cards you have, and how you're using those to make payment decisions. So, you know, that rich repository of information and our access to the retailer's information and view of you and how you might be shopping in that store on other vehicles and what your purchase trends have been is, is just so rich in terms of our ability to create models and to predict you know, what your your purchase and payment behavior is. And that's one of the services that we offer to retailers. As we said, you know, the bombardment issue goes away when you have all of that data at your disposal to understand what's the appropriate time to talk to you and what to talk to you about. And that, you know, level of sophistication continues to grow. You know, as we look at machine-based learning or artificial intelligence and bringing new tools to the table. And I know, you know, myself, I know just enough to be dangerous. I've got a team of people who do that and are just amazing at what they do and transformative in terms of turning retailer results in sales on a campaign basis or on a cohort or on a merchandise category basis. And what are some what are some insights or some tidbits that you've uh, that you've learned that aren't proprietary that would help our our marketers that are out there our CMOS that are working in retail? You know, because we have such a unique data set, it's hard to say that you can replicate much of what we do outside of having that kind of bank and retailer information. But increasingly, I think the use of data and the ability to separate out, you know, the wheat from the chaff in terms of where your opportunities are. So I'll give you an example um, of how powerful modeling can be. You know, so we were working with a particular retailer in terms of their most loyal customer. And let's just say, you know, Ian, you and I are both shopping at this particular retailer. We're spending $500 a year, and that retailer considers us both to be best customers. In mining, you know, the repository of data that we have on our side, understanding the shopping, their, you know, information in store, really what we're learning is that while we both on paper look like a best customer, I only am spending $500 a year in that particular category, and I'm consolidating all of my spend with you. I am truly your best customer. 
But you, Ian, are spending $1,000 a year on that category. And you're not actually, you might be a best customer on a dollar basis, but you're not a best customer in terms of consolidating your spend at that retailer. And my ability to understand, have visibility to the fact that you're spending $1,000 and to let the retailer know, hey, when you're spending your marketing dollars, don't spend it on Leslie. You're going to want to spend it on Ian. He's the guy that you need to get more spend out of. He's got the ability and he's got the wherewithal to spend in your store and you're not getting all the spend. Secondarily, if I'm then able to use modeling tools to find lookalikes, is to say, I think you have more Ian's in your retail. They may not be on my product, but I can see them inside of your repository of data based on the the modeling attributes that I use. I can now identify the the lookalikes for you. And let's, you know, A, let's get all their $1,000 worth of spend at you, retailer. But even more importantly, let's get them onto my product and lower your cost of goods sold overall. And and that's how powerful these tools can be. And to be clear, Ian does not have the money nor the wherewithal to figure out how to buy anything else. But yeah, I mean, I think that, that the shift from reactive to proactive is absolutely fascinating and predicting things like, I get retargeted now to the end of time for engagement rings. I, I, was, I was so Well, now they ought to be targeting you for wedding rings. If they're yeah, really know, good at what they're doing, they're shifting it. And by the way, no, at your first anniversary, your fifth anniversary, and your first child, they should know. Yep. In, the, in the jewelry space, that is the spend pattern. Unfortunately, after for some reason, after the first child, you, people kind of give up on the, on the jewelry. <laughs> yeah, all the jewelry at that point is... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, at that point, you're probably low, you know, saving for college. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny, though. I, I, I get retargeted. With the same, we're with a similar ring to the one I bought, you know, from all sorts of different merchants. Uh, I did a really good job of using incognito windows in the process because, like, I share devices with with my girlfriend, and so I'm like, I I knew that I had to be really smart about how I uh, how I shopped so that she wouldn't randomly be like looking at her iPad and like, why am I getting served engagement ring ads? So I did do actually a really good job on that, but. She was like, I had no idea. And then I looked at like one thing on a non-incognito window and the, the floodgates opened. Things like incognito windows or private browsing or things like that, ad blockers, how does that, how does that affect the state of affairs in retail? You know, I can't say that they're my favorite things, but I, I do think those are indications of what customers want and what they want are relevant conversations. They're not using those to necessarily... I can't say entirely because of privacy issues. They're using them because of the bombardment issue. And I think when you're looking at something like that, should be a warning sign to us that we need to be more sophisticated as marketers to make sure that it's a welcome dialogue. Um, and that's really, you know, what we're working on or what I think is, you know, the next generation of marketing is more thoughtful marketing, more explicit, more welcomed marketing as you know, opposed to the tools today, I think for you know a lot of industries are being used very indiscriminately or maybe more with excitement is a positive way to put it. They're a little over-enthusiastic. And I think folks are learning how to throttle that up and down and to make sure that they're relevant and appropriate. Okay, let's get into our lightning round questions. These questions are fast and easy. Just like marketing automation from Pardot, you can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing on the world's number one CRM that is Salesforce. We love Pardot. Check them out. They sponsor the podcast, and they're just awesome in every way. 
lightning round questions. Leslie, are you ready? All right, let's go for it. This is a money shot. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? My favorite thing to cook or eat? I'm a carnivore. It has to be steak. <laughs> what now, if is... it's a beverage, it's red wine, but they do go together. Indeed. What is your favorite vacation spot? It has to be an island, St. Martin. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Well, I just got done playing Starbucks Summer Game, so I'm going to say Starbucks. What is your favorite campaign that you've ever run? My favorite campaign that I ever ran. Years and years ago, I worked for a bank that shifted from offering credit cards on a national basis to a regional basis. And the jingle that we put together was fantastic. And that song to this day, like, unfortunately, now it's going to run in my head for the rest of my life. Um, But it was actually a broad-based advertising campaign, but on a regional basis. What campaign was your, uh, maybe your least favorite or your best learning experience? Oh, my best learning experience was early in my career. I worked with an affinity group that passed me a very bad list. And I did a poor job of scrubbing it. And I got a higher response rate from people who were dead than I did who were alive. So the return mail that said deceased across the package had oh higher response goodness. rate than the live ones. And I always remember that as my like mailing to the dead. Oh, man, that is, that is rough. What is your best advice for a first-time CMO? Be curious is really keep an open mind, explore new ideas, leverage the people around you and their creativity. Uh, You know, we're never as smart as we think we are, and the people around us can add so much value. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? As a CMO or as a person? Either one. Well, I'd I'd love for people to ask me how I got so thin, but it's just not true. (laughs) Leslie, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Such good insights on retail and, uh, and it was just a blast. Any final thoughts or anything to plug? No, thank you so much, Ian. I enjoyed our conversation as well. Take care. You too. Bye now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels.
But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster, and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.